The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This episode of Science for the People is all about human research ethics. Later on, we'll speak to Hilda Bastian about the chocolate hoax, which is unfortunately not as tasty as it sounds. But first, let's dive into a collection of brilliant essays. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell and I have two guests with me today, both of the editors of the collection of essays, Human Subjects Research Regulation. I'm joined by Holly Fernandez-Lynch, the Executive Director of the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. Welcome, Holly. Thanks for having me. And also with me today is I, Glenn Cohen, the Faculty Director at the Petrie Flom Center. Good to have you here, Glenn. Thank you so much. Now, this collection was written in response to a document titled Human Subjects Research Protections, Enhancing Protections for Research Subjects and Reducing Burden, Delay, and Ambiguity for Investigators. So maybe tell us a bit about that document. Sure. So why don't I say a few words about it? So this was a document that was generated in July 2011 by the Department of Health and Human Services, although it was the result of lots of consultations with other departments. And it's what's known as, uh, this is a little technical, an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. So before you pass a new regulation, you often in the U.S. do one of these advanced notices. And the goal of the advanced notice was to substantially amend the main federal regulation that governs human subjects research, which is known uh, among uh, people who do this kind of work as the common rule because it governs uh, many different agencies, so it's common. And this was really the first major revision in about 20 years. So when you do one of these advanced notices, there's a comment period. They received uh, more than 1,100 submissions of comments signaling a very high level uh, of interest. Uh, a number of other agencies and public commentators besides us got involved in talking about this. And I think the most interesting thing is we know we do not yet have an actual rule. So we got all of these comments uh, starting in July 2011, and still the changes haven't been uh, made. So not only do we not have a rule, we don't have an actual proposed rule either. So as Glenn mentioned, what came out in 2011 was an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. The next step would be proposed rulemaking, um, which would be uh, in something called a notice of proposed rulemaking, an NPRM. And then the, the last step would be a final rule. So we haven't really made it past go um, on this yet. So before the comment period, what what was the committee basing their their proposed revisions on? Yeah, so I mean, this has been an area of lots of discussion over the past 20 years. I mean, research in America and in the world has changed, including one of the biggest changes that's become much more global and multi-center. Uh, and essentially, there was lots of discussions among uh, ethicists, regulators, industry, and the like, and a view that... Uh, the existing structure was not adequate for the current way in which research is conducted. And in particular, the um, the revision centered on six kind of themes at a very high level. One was the way in which levels of risk posed by a particular research project uh, are framed, and they, they proposed a new way to kind of calibrate 
uh, review process to the level of risk. A second was the notion of multi-site research. The research is being done by many different institutions, the same research project, and the idea that you might want a single reviewer, an institutional review board, is what we call it in the States. Other countries call it a research ethics committee and some way of simplifying that review structure to a single overarching reviewer, uh, changing the requirements for documenting and waiving informed consent. That was the third uh, big push. Uh, questions about mandatory data security protections for identifiable uh, data, including data from biospecimens. And here, really, there's just been a sea change in our ability to re-identify uh, data that looks pretty anonymized, and there's a lot of push to that. Um, adverse event reporting when something goes wrong, so changing the way in which we uh, report and facilitating the aggregation of those reports. And lastly, um, the existing uh, system essentially applies to all facilities that receive federal funding from an agency. They have to apply these protections to that project. Most uh, institutions like Harvard, for example, do what's called checking the box. They say if we get federal funding for one project, we're going to apply the same rules to all our projects, whatever the source of funding is. But that practice is not universal. So there was a push to change that as well. And I would say those were the six things that were really at the focus of the ANPRM. Holly, I don't know if you think that's a pretty good list or whether there are other things you wanted to say to that. It, no, that's a that's a great list. The one thing that I would add is that the ANPRM did not actually make a suggested change in this regard, but it did ask some questions about whether the same regulatory system should apply for biomedical research versus behavioral and social research. Right, and that's one of the huge questions covered in the book. So maybe before we we really dig into the proposed revisions, could you give us maybe an overview of the history of human research subject uh, regulation, specifically in the U.S., so that we understand how we got to this point? Sure. Um, so we'll I, can, crack I, yeah, I can take a crack at that. So I won't go back to the beginning of time, but I will go <laughs> back... You. Um, I will go back to about World War II, um, and during that time, many people know that the Nazis conducted some pretty horrific experiments on people in the concentration camps. And when the war was over, um, some of the perpetrators of those experiments were brought to trial in something called the Nuremberg Trials. And the result of that legal case was that the court put out something called the Nuremberg Code, which has 10 principles for the protection of human subjects. And this was basically a response to what happened um, in the in the concentration camps. So it covered things like the consent of the individual subject is absolutely essential um, and a wide variety of other protections. But it was a pretty bare bones document and it was not really adopted in the U.S. or internalized by U.S. researchers because it was basically considered a code for barbarians, right? This is applicable to the Nazis, not us, not us good upstanding researchers who would never do such horrible things to people. And so it didn't really sink in. Um, and the next big thing that happened... Um, uh, was the revelation of the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. Um, now, these were studies that took place for four decades from about the, 19, the early 1930s until they were um, sort of publicly discovered in the early 1970s. And this involved um, sort of watching uh, poor black men uh, in the South become infected with syphilis and then not 
provide them with penicillin, which was known to work uh, to treat syphilis. So the men were not purposefully infected, um, as opposed to some other research that uh, has taken place, but they basically were watched and allowed um, to suffer and deteriorate. And so when that research um, came to public light, the government responded um, basically by implementing a set of regulations that had started to be put in place for some federally funded research and then got expanded um, more substantially. The other big thing that happened in response to the Tuskegee experiments was um, that a National Bioethics Commission was put in place to develop a set of principles to govern human subjects research, and they published something called the Belmont Report um, that had basically three primary principles um, of autonomy, beneficence, and justice. Um, that were intended to govern human subjects research regulation. And that led us to things like informed consent, making sure that the benefits um, and risks of research are appropriately calibrated and that vulnerable populations are protected. Uh, so, so that um, sort of was the precursor for where we are today. And then, as Glenn mentioned earlier, in the in the early 90s, um, the government promulgated this thing called the Common Rule that got signed on to by, I think it's 16 or 17 different um, federal agencies. And so, contingent on getting funding from one of those agencies, uh, researchers become um, compelled to adhere to that set of rules. So now that that covers everything from uh, like self-reported studies on the nutritional habits of university students to uh, clinical studies for new cancer drugs. So there, um, there are two main sets of regulations to be aware of. One is the common rule. The other is um, the set of regulations promulgated by the Food and Drug Administration uh, for research involving products that are regulated by FDA. Um, by and large, the research regulations uh, are between those two agencies are quite similar, with the primary requirements being. Um, IRB review, right? So um, review before research gets off the ground by an independent body, and then also um, informed consent either from the research participant or uh, a surrogate for that person. You're listening to Science for the People, and I'm here with Holly Fernandez-Lynch and I, Glenn Cohen, the co-editors of the book, Human Research Subjects Regulation. So maybe walk me through that process, uh, the current process. How does one go about getting approval for human subject research in the U.S.? So usually uh, the first step will be to determine whether you're actually covered by the rules or not. And this is the question about whether it really is human subjects uh, and whether it really is research. And believe it or not, there are fights on this question, the definition, the human subjects piece is pretty easy, usually, definitionally. You know, sometimes you maybe not. I don't know. I don't want to say this for everyone, but the question of research is often more difficult. The rule, the common rule adopts something like likely to lead to generalizable knowledge. And there's sometimes fights about that. Is this research or is this preparatory to research? Why are you interviewing this person who's doing qualitative research, right? Is it to produce generalizable knowledge or is it to help you to understand a piece of a story you're trying to tell, for example? Then there's also a series of exemptions. Now, sometimes you are able to say on the face of your research protocol, uh, my research proposed, it's not going to be covered by uh, the common rule or the regulations. More often, though, in borderline cases, you'll go to an institutional review board 
for a declaration that your um, research is exempt. So in fact, you'll still go to this institutional review board, which is made up of usually members of the community, uh, physicians, if it's medical research, lawyers, bioethicists, and every university uh, has one, as do most academic medical centers and the like. And the first step will be to determine if you're exempt or not. If you're exempt, it's good news as a researcher. There's not much more you have to do. Right. If you're not exempt, then there's a series of things you'll have to do. And essentially, you'll submit a protocol and descriptions. It'll be reviewed. There's a set of rules about when you need to have informed consent, what kind of consent, and the like. And we can talk more about that. So that's my attempt at a concise but maybe overly simplistic uh, description. Hall, I don't know if you wanted to correct me on anything or have anything to add. No, definitely not a correction, but um, I would just sort of step through um, each sort of layer uh, in a bit more detail. So as, as Glenn mentioned, the first thing to do is figure out whether you're conducting human subjects research in the first place. So if you um, are collecting data through intervention or interaction with an individual, or you're working with identifiable private information about a living individual, and um, that investigation is being conducted in some systematic way, um, and it's designed to develop or contribute to generalizable knowledge, then you've met the first threshold to even consider whether the common rule applies to you. Then you get into the question about exemptions, um, and then there are some other um, sort of branches that you can go off in depending on whether you're minimal risk research or that sort of thing. On the FDA side, they aren't asking whether you're conducting human subjects research. Instead, their um, preliminary threshold is whether you're conducting a clinical investigation. And that basically means introducing um, one of FDA's regulated products into human subjects uh, for a purpose that that product has not yet approved for. Now, that sounds complicated on the face of it, which it is. Um, but but why are the revisions being proposed now? Because I understand that these issues have been around a long time. Yeah. So the first answer is that, yes, they've been around a long time, but it takes the government a long time to make changes, right. obviously, for a whole variety of reasons, just including institutional inertia. Um, and then the difficulties getting people to agree on what the changes actually should be. So everybody might agree that change is needed, but coming to agreement on how the changes should be made. We're seeing is an incredibly lengthy process, even just getting from the ANPRM to the NPRM. But what the government has said um, about why they want to intervene now um, is, is twofold. So the first is that research has changed dramatically in the past, um, you know, 30 years, as, as Glenn mentioned, um, often conducted globally now through multi-site research studies. There um, is much more research being done with biospecimens. Uh, genetic research creates um, a variety of new questions that people weren't really thinking about in the 90s. And so um, basically what the government has said is research has changed. We need to be responsive to that. And they also are recognizing some of the criticisms that have been put forward against the existing regulatory structure as overly burdensome. Um, and so they're trying to improve the efficiency while enhancing protection for participants. This is Science for the People, and we'll be back to continue our conversation with I. Glenn Cohen and Holly Fernandez-Lynch, the co-editors of the book Human Research Subjects Regulation, after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. 
To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I've been talking to the co-editors of Human Subjects Research Regulation, published by MIT Press, Holly Fernandez-Lynch and I. Glenn Cohen, and they are respectively uh, the executive director and the faculty director of the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. Okay, so let's just jump right in to the proposed revisions, and uh, we'll get to those broader changes we mentioned earlier in a bit. Uh, so there are proposed revisions that involve data security, privacy, and confidentiality. Can you talk about those? Sure. Um, so basically what's going on here is that in the current state of the world, the common rule doesn't impose any specific data security protections for IRB-reviewed uh, research. Instead, what they say is that IRBs are responsible for making sure that there are adequate provisions to protect the privacy of subjects and to maintain the confidentiality of their data. But the regulations don't specify exactly how IRBs should do that. And so the regulators have basically recognized that IRBs are not well-suited to do this sort of thing. This is not their area of expertise, right? So as Glenn mentioned before, there are medical doctors, investigators, lawyers, community members um, who are knowledgeable about research and research design and those types of things, but are not necessarily the right people to think about um, what risks might be posed to privacy and confidentiality or to figure out um, how you should protect against those risks, right? That can sometimes be more of um, an IT question. Um, for people who are really computer savvy or savvy about the internet. Um, and so what the um, ANPRM proposed is uh, requiring that all research um, have certain specified data security protections put in place um, so that IRBs wouldn't even really have to deal with the administrative burden of thinking about this anymore. And so what the ANPRM suggests are some data security protections that are that would look similar to um, the HIPAA security rule they would require various levels of encryption, physical security requirements for paper documents, um, audit requirements, and those types of things. Just a lot more specificity. Um, if this actually gets finalized, there would be a lot more specificity in the rules. Um, make it easier for IRBs who are not expert in this and also presumably protect um, research subjects' data better. So that that all sounds reasonable to me. <laughs> so are are the are, are there arguments against the proposed changes? You know, none that I am aware of. I think um, many people agree that IRBs are just not the right people to be doing this. And in a wide variety of research, the only risk is the risk to people's privacy and confidentiality. And so if there is some sort of out of, you know, out of the box solution that we can just sort of plug and play for all of these different research studies, I think a lot of people agree that that's more efficient and preferable. Glenn, yeah, I, will, yeah, I will say that this kind of proposal, that some of what would have been exempt or not human subjects research, I think now becomes human subjects research and becomes governed by the institutional review boards. So that there are in the system. So there are people, I think, who think uh, there's an imperialism of research ethics and it already touches too many things. And when the determination of whether something is human subjects research or the stringency of review will depend in part on the risk of reidentification and data security, for example, that now sweeps more into it. 
I mean, I will say it again. One of the things is we're the editors. There's lots of people with different views in the book. One thing that struck me, and just to give you a very tangible example, and I'm going to nerd out for a second, so wait, wait for it. This is a, a study done by Melissa Jimrek and her colleagues in 2013. And basically, they show that it's possible to determine the surname of somebody who has a de-identified DNA sequence record. And the way they did this is they developed a software program that uh, extracts the uh, short tandem repeats on the Y chromosome. And then they leverage publicly accessible genetic genealogy databases, which report population statistics about correlating these tandem repeats in the surname to assign a name to a DNA sequence record. And they show that if it, you had another piece of data like the year of birth and state of resident, then about 12% of Caucasian males could be re-identified this way. And they actually went ahead and showed this using uh, Utah residents. I'm not exactly sure why they chose Utah, who had made DNA information, again, anonymized, de-identified data, publicly available for research. And they showed that in some instances, they were able to do uh, surname identification and unique re-identification with a high degree of confidence. Now again, this is proof of concept, right? They're not saying that everybody in their backyard is able to do what they're doing, but they took a set of data that I think most people would have regarded as really de-identified and then showed that actually it's possible not every time, but with just publicly available databases to actually re-identify people, can, which is scary. Yeah. Can we just actually uh, define de-identified Identified, so people understand what that means. So I would resist the attempt to define it for the following reason, is that I think people misuse it as a past tense. Uh, this has been de-identified as though it's all or nothing, whereas I think of it as more of a continuum. Now, the, uh, the classic definition of it that I think most people have in mind is uh, what HIPAA requires, which requires you to strip 18 identifiers, things like name, age, social security number, I think it's like addresses below a certain or above a certain, below a certain level of granularity, like street. There's and a whole code, list. I think. Zip code, yeah. zip yeah. code, right? right? So there's a whole set of things that, that, that we require that you strip as part of uh, HIPAA when a covered entity is involved or get consent to do this. But in reality, I think people often misuse this term and suggest that there's like a real state of being de-identified. I like to say, I'm not sure everybody agrees with me, the only truly de-identified data is useless data. And the reason why we want to have data on people is because because there's something about that person that is important to know with uh, something else that we're trying to do. But in general, I think most people have this idea of data stripped of these 18 identifiers. Holly, I don't know if you have a different perspective on this. No, no, that's exactly right. Um, and I don't know, Desiree, if you want to go down this this path right now, but part of, part of the reason about... Um, uh, part of what Glenn was describing about how it has become easier or potentially will be easier to re-identify data or specimens that have been previously stripped of identifiers, what that has resulted in is one of the um, proposals in the ANPRM. So as things stand at present, it is not considered human subjects research if you are doing um, research on existing biospecimens that don't have identifiers attached to them. And that's um, for reasons related to the definition of human subjects research that I, that I mentioned previously. If the specimens are existing, you're not interacting or intervening with an individual. And if you don't have identifiers, you're not getting private information about them. And so what the ANPRM says is um, going forward, if this got 
finalized uh, as, as, as regulations, you would need to get written consent for research use of biospecimens, even if they've been stripped of identifiers, but consent could be obtained using sort of a standard short form consent by which a person would be allowed to give open-ended consent for most research uses going forward. Um, so that's sort of a complicated way of saying that when the specimens were collected from you, whether for research purposes or clinical purposes, you would be asked, is it okay for us to use your, your specimens for research going forward? Um, and you could either say yes or no, or you could say, yes, it's okay for cancer research, but not HIV research, or yes, it's okay for nonprofit research, but not for pharma company research. And that would just be sort of one time um, for, you know, perpetuity for, for these uses um, going forward. And so on the one hand, um, there's evidence, empirical evidence that people want to be asked about what will happen to their specimens. And so the ANPRM is responsive to that. Um, on the other hand, many people are, many scientists are kind of concerned because they worry that this will make it more difficult to do research with biospecimens when they previously could do this stuff without consent in right. some contexts. So, and I guess that's that's what I'm wondering is, so how are we currently dealing with consent? Because that that is another revision, a proposed revision. Yeah, so on the biospecimens, I mean, so Holly and I are both sat on institutional review boards that are the boards that review for various institutions. I would say it's become kind of a standard practice to when biospecimen to have you explicitly consent to the use of your biospecimen in a kind of open-ended sort of way. And there's actually been some litigation about this. This was the case a few years ago on the question of somebody, it's kind of funny, there was this guy, a researcher who had the world's largest collection of prostate uh, materials. He collected prostates. Again, not something that I collect, but you never know, right? It could be useful for something. <laughs> you got to have a hobby. So. <laughs> yeah, I got to have. It was, it was his livelihood, though, and he moved to a different institution. He wanted permission to take his prostate uh, um, samples with him, and he university said, no, 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 no. The prostate uh, biobank belongs to us. And then he wrote to his individual um, uh, people who had donated over the years, he was also a practicing physician and said, would you please give me, uh, permission or if not, at least, and the people wrote in and said they wanted to withdraw their specimen from the university bank. And the court, I think it was in Missouri, if I remember correctly, uh, said something to the effect of, no, when you gave your prostate, it was an unconditional gift. You had no expectation you would get your prostate sample back. So I'm sorry, you're done with this. You know, you can't take with you belongs to the university. So this is to say this is this does come up. Most institutions that I know of and I've worked with, and Holly, maybe you'll have a different experience, already have a kind of open-ended consent process. But there have also been cases where, uh, you know, part of the problem is you don't know ahead of time when you collect these biospecimens what kinds of things we'll be looking at exactly. 10 or 50 years from now. Right. Uh, so Although open-ended consent is, I think, a pretty good solution, one of the difficulties is that there are areas of sensitivity. There's a famous case involving uh, the Havasupi tribe, uh, I think, in Arizona, where the research was being done towards mental health issues and using kind of data from from this tribe, and there was a lot of sensitivity uh, by the people who had donated their their tissues. And uh, Holly, you may want to say more about that and more about this in general. 
Yeah, so the only thing I'll say on the Havasupai case is that the research was originally conducted for diabetes purposes, and then um, the later uses were about schizophrenia and also um, put in, called into question this tribe's sort of um, or, origin um, beliefs, and so that created uh, a wide variety of consent issues. So the, the only other thing that I'll say about this one-time general consent um, is a criticism that I've heard and I tend to agree with, is whether it's consent at all. Because um, part of what consent requires is an understanding, um, uh, an understanding of what you're being asked to do. And if, as Glenn said, we have no idea how your specimens are going to be used in the future, how can we really call that consent? Is it consent, or is it just sort of cover and pandering to people who say, "Well, I want control over how my specimens are being used." Now, the other criticism of requiring consent in this way is that it seems to acknowledge that people have some ownership in their specimens or some interest in what happens to their specimens. And there's a lot of people who recoil at that idea that basically say, look, their specimens are really valuable for scientific research, really socially valuable. Um, there's nothing that these people are going to be doing with their specimens, right? They're not gaining value from them. And so long as researchers are prob promising to use them in a responsible way or promising not to try to re-identify the, the donors, um, then why are we even asking people? Why are we giving them this choice? Uh, and I think that 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 challenge of, well, should we just give people what we want since they're saying they want to give their permission? Or should we just tell them, no, this is socially valuable and we're going to do what we, what we want with it and trying to deal with the trust repercussions that would have. I think that's just a huge challenge in how to, how to deal with biospecimen research going forward. And the fact that we have this conflict, I have a hunch, is part of the reason that the, the ANPRM has been held up so long. And let me just say one more thing on this point, which is um, uh, the, you know, this wonderful book by Rebecca Sklude on Henrietta Lacks and her story, that a lot of this is, there's control on the one hand, and one of our colleagues is fond of saying pieces of people are not people, that this idea of personality and control, that this reflects me, is some kind of folk belief, but in fact, my blood, when I give it away, is no longer me, it is something else. But connected to the question of control is the question of ownership and profit, and here I think really the, the boat has sailed for the most part, in that every consent form I've ever seen involving biospecimens explicitly disclaims your interest in the, the biospecimen, your ownership, your royalties, and the like. But many people, I think, have a reaction to this. It's not just about control or privacy or misuse, but some sense that why am I being cut out from the equation when someone goes ahead and commercializes a piece of my body? And I think some of that kind of feeling was behind uh, the uproar over Henrietta Lacks and Rebecca Sloot's book. And let me say one more thing. So <laughs> this sorry. is the way we go. <laughs> this, this is, and this is just shameless self-promotion, which is to say that Glenn and I, along with colleagues from um, Case Western University and um, Harvard's Clinical and Translational Science Center, will be hosting a conference um, at Harvard Law School on November 16th, 2015, um, about biospecimen research, consent issues, um, and the future of regulation in that area. That, okay, so this is how good your book was. Um, I have opinions about everything. <laughs> I make them all the time. But the arguments in this book, specifically around the issues of consent, are so persuasive from diametrically opposed positions that I really and truly do not know what I think about anything <laughs> in regards <laughs> to this. So thank you. Uh, this is Science for the People, and I'm here with I, Glenn Cohen, and Holly Fernandez-Lynch, the co-editors of the book Human Subjects Research, Perspective 
perspectives on the future. Now, the, the articles in your book bring up uh, a number of issues that aren't even covered uh, in the advance notice of proposed rulemaking document. Uh, but uh, there's one article that I really wanted to talk about, and, and Holly, it's actually yours. Uh, it proposes that we look at research subjects like we do employees and that we should look to employment law for research, uh, human research subject protections. Can you just run us through that? Sure, I'll give you, um, I'll give you the brief version. And the idea here is that human research subjects are very well protected in a variety of ways through the common rule and the FDA regulations. And the ANPRM is proposing ways to make them even more protected. So if this is the model that we have, I think it's intriguing that there are some ways in which research subjects are less protected than workers in normal workplaces. And I think there are a number of reasons that we might think about certain types of research participants like workers. Um, and the best analogy uh, are healthy individuals who participate in non-therapeutic research, right? So phase one studies, um, you know, they might be in sleep studies or they might be in otherwise or inpatient research um, where, where they aren't really getting any benefit out of this at all. Maybe they're um, altruistic in some way, but they are taking um, burdens on and, and various risks. And so for that group in particular, um, I found it troubling that they are not compensated the way that one might expect workers to be compensated. And they lack anything similar to a worker's compensation system in the event of injury. So um, those are two areas that I sort of explore in my chapter, articulating reasons why I think it's appropriate for certain types of research subjects to be paid more for their um, participation than they are now, and also analyzing ways in which injured research subjects would be guaranteed compensation in a way that the regulations don't currently require. And Holly, let me just encourage you to say a few words about the professionalization of research subjects and the idea of the professional guinea pig, as it were. Right. So I found this, really in the course of doing this, this research, I found this incredible set of materials um, from the pre-blogosphere world. So you might remember that there was a period of time when people would self-publish magazines. You know, they would call them zines. Mm -hmm. And I stumbled across a set of zines um, from a guy who considered himself a professional guinea pig. And the name of the zine is Guinea Pig Zero. And basically what it was was a resource for healthy research participants, often people who were artists or sort of outside of the normal, you know, work economy. And what they would do is um, sort of fill each other in on which sites offered the best research studies, the wow. best, you know, sort of the best locations, the best perks, the best food, the best payment. Um, and they would submit sort of cartoons and, you know, have commentary on various things. And basically, they had articulated themselves as professional subjects. And the publisher of this zine, interestingly enough, in a former life had been a labor union organizer. Um, and so it just sort of, he had some ideas about ways in which um, human subjects looked more like workers. A couple of other people in the bioethics community had talked about this, but nobody had really done a legal analysis of the ways in which research subjects might actually
actually fit a definition of employee without any changes to the law or regulations, and then other sort of more analogical reasoning why it would be ethically appropriate to treat certain types of subjects more like workers. So on the one hand, um, there are strong parallels between subjects and workers. On the other hand, it can be challenging to think about them in workers, um, think about them as workers, because uh, there's a concern that if you pay people more to participate in research, um, they might lie or otherwise be deceitful in order to get into studies. And so you could have some scientific concerns about the data that's being collected. People have a lot of concerns about coercion and undue influence when it comes to paying participants. I find those concerns unpersuasive because um, we pay people in the workplace to take risk all the time, and we think it's perfectly appropriate to do that in that context. And so I caution in the chapter and, and elsewhere against this idea of research exceptionalism and that we have to be super careful and overprotective of um, participants in a way that we wouldn't necessarily be outside of the research context. But there's lots of differing opinion on that. <laughs> well, and that's because uh, I think this is brilliant. It's a brilliant way to look at it. But, but Glenn, in your opinion, what isn't covered in the revision? that should be? I think that the biggest difficulty with the revisions is actually the definition of appropriate payment and the idea of benefit. So my own view is that uh, most institutional review boards are overly conservative when it comes to paying people. I worry about paying people too little, not paying them too much, to be honest, especially when the risks are involved. So I would like to have seen clearer definitions of ideas like undue inducement, exploitation, and coercion, and clearer guidance about what does not constitute those things. And that's not something that they wanted to touch with a 10-foot pole, is my take on it. But I would like to see it nonetheless. Now, we have the and. PRN document. So what now? What happens next? So that's a great question. You know, when Holly and I edited this book, we were worried every day that the actual notice of proposed rulemaking would come out and it would have incorporated our criticisms. Maybe that was a bit too highfalutin or too much hope for people actually reading what we're doing. But we were worried that things would have changed in the interim. But in fact, it's been almost four years now. Nothing has come out. We kind of move in circles where people are constantly whispering soon, three months, the fall or something like that. But it hasn't been generated yet. But when it does come generated, again, the next step will be a notice of proposed rulemaking and then a final uh, rule. And then the institutions will have to grapple with the changes and the consequences intended or unintended. There is some chance that nothing comes out in this administration. And if nothing comes out in this administration, I don't know that the next administration will necessarily view this as a priority. So there is some possibility that these changes will languish. I will say my own take of this, just taking a few steps back about the strategy here, was it was extremely ambitious to do this all at once. And I think that it created some political difficulties in terms of the just the volume of people lobbying and commenting on this, that instead of doing all six areas at once, it might have been better to just do one of the areas a year for the last few years. But, you know, when there's political will to push something through, sometimes that's what happens. Absolutely. Holly, did you want to add anything? You know, <laughs> over the past four years, I can't tell you how many conversations we've had about when is it going to come? I hear it's going to come in a couple of months and it's just never come to fruition. So I think, you know, offering a guess about when this is going to come is just um, 
a fool's errand. I hope that the NPRM will come soon and I hope that the final rule will come quick on its heels. But if this process is any indication, um, I think it could be another, you know, five years before we have real changes to the regulations. Now, that being said, the fact that these things um, have been proposed has gotten a lot of people talking, paying attention to this space. And it's even gotten IRB communities, I think, more primed to think about how they might be improving efficiency on their own, even without regulatory change. And so in that regard, I do think it's had a beneficial effect. Well, I will definitely be watching everything you guys do. This is a, this is a brilliant book. If, um, if anybody in the audience is interested in this topic and is looking at, as I was for years, looking at a very accessible, uh, but, but still challenging look at human subject research regulation, uh, go pick it up. So, uh, thanks very much for being here, both of you. Thank you thanks for, having, for having, us. having us. And that was Holly Fernandez Lynch and I, Glenn Cohen, the co-editors of the book, Human Subjects Research Regulation, Perspectives on the Future. We've linked to them on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Next up on Science for the People, I'm joined by Hilda Bastian to talk about the chocolate hoax. Hilda was a longtime consumer advocate in Australia before her career turned to analyzing health evidence and making it more accessible to the public. She works in Washington, D.C. at the National Institutes of Health and is an academic editor of PLOS Medicine, a major medical journal, and a member of the Human Research Ethics Advisory Group of PLOS One, a general science journal. Good to have you here, Hilda. G'day, Desiree. Now, you wanted to give a brief disclaimer before we start our discussion. I do. I think it's important to uh, understand that I'm not speaking for any of the organizations for which I work or that I'm involved with. It's just personal opinions. So for the, the, for the folks in the audience that haven't heard about the chocolate hoax who do not live on the Internet uh, like maybe I do, uh, can you walk us through how that all went down? What was this all about? There's a few different kind of stories about what actually happened here from different people involved. But in essence, some people were doing a document, a TV documentary about problems in nutrition science and the way journalists cover it. And it kind of escalated into, instead of just critiquing the sort of bad things that people do, to the idea of saying, well, let's actually go and run a complete hoax, a complete hoax study hoax media campaign, the whole thing, to see who falls for it. Um, and that's, in a sense, what, what happened. And they kept going and went all the way down the line. Well, maybe give us a bit of a chronology here. So this started in Germany with two journalists who wanted to do a TV document, a documentary critiquing the way that researchers do research on diet studies and the way the media then covers it, the whole, uh, the whole sort of research journalist complex around this, which they regarded as corrupt. And so they decided that they'd prove it was corrupt 
by actually participating in a hoax uh, that was showing how everything was corrupt at every stage of the line. Uh, so it was a kind of a sting operation, even more than a hoax, of getting a group of people to participate in the documentary, not tell them that, in fact, they were going to be running a fake trial of, uh, of a diet that they had, which included chocolate, get these people to actually go through all of the all of the process as though it was a serious uh, trial, uh, put out a, a really fake, bad study, get a, a journal to publish it, do a press campaign to get journalists to fall for it, and then publicise the hoax. So now there were media outlets that took the bait, weren't there? Yes. I mean, there were. There were fewer probably that took the bait the first time around when it was actually a hoax about the study. And then there was a lot more media when it came to publicising the documentary and the hoax itself. Uh, At each stage, uh, media did respond in the way that the people running the hoax wanted them to. Uh, many, many fewer over the issue of the actual study because it was phenomenally bad uh, and it tended to be covered by that kind of end of the the journalist spectrum that you really shouldn't rely on for uh, information about health or science anyway. Right. Well, now you you mentioned it was very bad. This a very bad study design. So, well, can you tell us a bit about that? But what they actually uh, did was try to get together all of the the kind of components of what a good study would be like and do the opposite. Right. And so, for example, they then had they really rigged everything from the beginning through to the end. They rigged the interventions. They made sure the groups of people were too small. Uh, They took uh, hundreds and hundreds of measurements, which meant that there were going to be an awful lot of kind of false positives and uh, they'd be able to find the things that they could pick and choose to to show whatever they wanted to show. Uh, They hid almost everything that happened. For example, the article didn't even say how many people were in the study. Uh, They rigged it in... All sorts of ways. So, for example, when they had the groups of people come in for the final weigh-in to see how much weight they had lost or not, they got the people in the groups uh, who they didn't want to have lost weight to drink a really large glass of water before they got on the scale so they'd be heavier. All of those kinds of things. Every possible thing that you can think of to rig the process they did. Uh, and then afterwards, they said that what they had done was the usual kinds of things that researchers do. And of course, that's not the usual kind of thing that researchers do. And so on one level, uh, I would assume that they would think that this project was a success. They they did get the uncritical media coverage that they wanted, maybe not by the most reputable sources, though. Yes, they were very pleased with how it went down. Perhaps not the, so much the criticism that came around the ethics of what they had done later, Uh, But you got the sense when you actually looked at the documentary that the TV station might not even have bought the documentary if it didn't have this element in it. Uh, So there was this whole thing of of becoming ever more sensational to try and get attention. Uh, They certainly got the attention. Well, now you you mentioned the uh, the responses to this about the ethical aspect because that's um I think that's one level the uncritical reporting aspect um, and we could talk more about that but the other aspect that I'm actually more interested in is the that people are discussing is these folks actually did set up a genuine research study without taking it through an ethics review board correct 
That's right. Uh, that's what they did. Uh, and it raises kind of several uh, issues, one of which is you had somebody who was actually governed by research regulations, and that was the doctor in Germany. You had people from uh, that issue of what happens when somebody from another country, in this instance somebody from the US, gets involved in, uh, in something that's happening in another country that they don't know about, in this case Germany. Uh, and those issues of what happens... Uh, where's the line uh, for journalists with research and so on. Then in addition, you had the issues of the ethics around the journal uh, and publishing such an article in the way that they did. You had issues around the TV station encouraging people to, to do this kind of thing. Uh, you had uh, the whole issue about journalist ethics and whether journalists should participate in knowingly lying uh, to the public. There were just lots and lots of different layers at which uh, ethics uh, came to play and the system, including whether or not anybody's going to do anything about it now after the event. And, and that's exactly what I'm wondering about. So so let's go back to the doctor now. The doctor that was in charge of running this trial, um, did he do something unethical by running this study to begin with, knowing the, uh, what they wanted the outcome to be? Clearly he doesn't think so. Uh, this isn't somebody who would uh, – it wasn't a process of people people trying to say, we can prove that you can do unethical things and you can harm people. It wasn't that kind of a process. And it's, a diff it's an inherently difficult question because the answer to that question depends on so many things. Even within a really regulated system where everybody really understands what the rules are, people will answer that kind of question quite differently. Uh, so it really does become a matter of personal opinion, which is part of the reason the processes around ethics regulation review involve getting people with different perspectives so that you could bring those perspectives together. So there's no, actual, there's no actual regulation around what the doctor did then? There is, there is regulation. Uh, the question, though, is those kind of regulations are different from country to country. And even, even when you do have very specific regulations, people will disagree about whether they were broken or not. That's the same process that you have when a jury considers uh, whether something's a crime or not. Uh, people will legitimately come up with different opinions about whether somebody's crossed the line now or not. In this instance, to me, if I was on a, uh, if I was on a review for a process like this, uh, with research that's lying to the participants about what the real reason for the research is, those kinds of things, my particular position on this particular thing would be it was unethical. Because these folks, the, the participants in the study, they were not told uh, the reason for the study. Right. They weren't told. Well, the, these things are, are quite unclear exactly what happened. But let's take it from what it, what it looks like, from uh, what we can tell from as outsiders looking in. They weren't told that the entire purpose of this was to reveal that people can get taken in and uh, cruelly hoaxed uh, and uh, for, for somebody else's reasons, which was really the purpose of the study. It really had absolutely nothing to do with chocolate or weight loss or any of those things. It was to uncover the weaknesses in the system. Now, you could tell people the truth about that and they would participate in a study like that. Uh, so it wouldn't have actually prevented them from being able to do what they wanted to do. Uh, I know that many of us would probably say we'd put our hands up to be in a study that would show the weaknesses of journalism or research or anything, really. So it wasn't actually necessary uh, to, uh, to to do this. 
And that's one of the issues around whether or not it's considered ethical to deceive people about the purposes of research. Uh, can you actually do it in another way? Is it absolutely essential to deceive people? Uh, and I don't think that you can argue in this case that it was. Well, and it's because sometimes that does happen in properly run studies as part of the study design is you don't tell people the outcome. There's some things that there's just no other way that you could research uh, because uh, knowing would absolutely totally change people's behaviour. Uh, that wasn't the case here at all, though. And, and different people have got different processes then for how you deal with that. So, for example, I mean, the really proper way to ethically deal with research that involves deception includes all sorts of safeguards for uh, trying to minimise the, the damage and the distress and the betrayal that people feel or may, or may feel. Many many don't. Many just think, funny, ha-ha. Uh, other people will be very distressed by that kind of thing and, and lose trust in, in researchers in the future, their doctors, whoever. Uh, and so there's a range of things that you actually need to do in order for this to be considered within the normal bounds of ethics and they, they include the ways that you're going to reveal what actually happened and what the real purpose was, uh, the support that you've got there for people, that you've got proper uh, insurance in place for if somebody gets harmed. There's a whole range of issues that are there and different countries do it in different ways. You know, Switzerland, for example, has this process that says you can do it, but you get the informed consent from people after you've collected the data and before you use it. So you can collect the data under false pretenses, but you can't use the data under false pretenses. You then go and get their permission before you take one step further, which is sounds to, seems to me like a very, very good process. Well, let's be clear. This wasn't just um, this wasn't just a, a, like a self-reported study. That was relatively invasive. They they took blood and urine samples throughout the the process, right? That's right. I mean, you can't just go and jab a needle in somebody's arm and take blood out of them, uh, except uh, in certain circumstances when when they've consented to it. Uh, and these people were consenting to to something. Uh, that was absolutely and totally unnecessary. Um, and uh, so there was that. There was the having to ha follow a low-carb diet and eat, a if you were in that particular group, eat a, a very large amount of not very nice chocolate. This was bitter chocolate and you had to eat a lot of it. So uh, that kind of a process of saying I'm going to measure how I sleep, how I feel every single day, weigh myself constantly, uh, have lots and lots of tests, all of that kind of stuff is a, a real burden. It's a real uh, imposition on people's lives. And in that kind of weighing the balance of whether something's ethical or not, you look at those issues of how do the possible benefits of the knowledge weigh up against the harms, but also the inconvenience. And that was one of the, the things that happened here. They, they were going to a doctor. Presumably they trusted the doctor because there was a doctor involved. Uh, they were taken for a ride and they were seriously inconvenienced. It, will there be any penalties or consequences to the doctor for being involved in this? I have no idea. Uh, and this is also one of those sorts of things. You see this not just with ethics but also with uh, medical practitioners in general. To what extent will the will the system actually investigate something? When do they uh, do they circle the wagons and protect one of their own? 
do they get sort of excessive in the other direction? Those sorts of things vary a lot from place to place and country to country. And I have no idea about that particular state in Germany and the particular attitude of uh, the group that's the responsible for uh, doctors doing this. Uh, we don't even know uh, if they even know it happened uh, or whether anybody reported it or uh, just how seriously they take it at all. Perhaps it even has been investigated and we just don't know about it uh, because there's a, that's another thing that can vary f a great deal from place to place. Uh, to what extent are, are processes and around this kind of thing even uh, transparent uh, in the place, the, the state in Australia where I was involved in this kind of thing, particularly regulation of medical practitioners and so forth. Uh, it's almost impossible to believe that it wouldn't have been investigated uh, if a doctor did something like that in the media. There would have been so many complaints coming in. Uh, a process would have had to have happened. But uh, who knows what happened, what's going to happen somewhere else. Now, all these obviously problematic areas aside, has this this hoax, this project, I don't know what to call it, uh, has it brought some important issues to light? That's an important question because uh, certainly in terms of the ethics, that's the that's the entire thing that hangs around this, pivots around. Uh, do the benefits outweigh um, the clear harm that was done? It's not just a question of were there any benefits, it's were there any benefits that have, could, could have been gotten in any other way. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, there's going to be some people who, for example, considered some of those statistical issues about over-testing. You test hundreds and hundreds of times, you're going to get some false positives, you always will. There's going to be people who are going to learn about something like that for the first time. However, uh, people can learn about those things in other ways. You don't have to, this is not the only way that, that you can sort of pick up the knowledge of people in, in that kind of a way. So uh, I, I would consider that quite small. At the same time, one of the things that you saw quite a lot of were, were people responding in comment sections on the on the German media outlets and so on, saying this proves why you can't ever trust any science at all. Exactly. And, you know, you can't trust journalists, you can't trust researchers, uh, there's just lies, lies and damn statistics, that whole thing. And, 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 of course, a lot of those people who are saying that may have already thought that before, uh, but it does, uh, to me, it does kind of cancel out the, you know, whatever, those two things probably just cancel each other out. And I don't think anybody was actually kind of like researching this in any, in any solid way. Uh, but I was watching it very carefully in the, from what I could see on the internet in Germany and in Australia, uh, sorry, and in uh, the English speaking countries. Uh, and I really, I really couldn't see that it was anything more than a kind of seven day wonder. So then what would you have people take away from the chocolate hoax experience, I guess? I think the journalist profession's got a lot uh, to take away from this. Not about covering the, the original diet story, but about their reaction to the hoax. And I think that whole process of a debate that, that happened a little, but nowhere near enough, around when journalists make themselves the story and 
uh, the whole kind of ego stuff that's behind that and that sort of seeking uh, since ever more sensationalist stories by doing ever more outrageous things is something that's really should. And ironically, this was a, a journalist from an ethics department at Harvard. Uh, that's actually, to me, the main takeaway here. What happens is journalists more and more want to kind of do the things that scientists do, do data journalism, do all sorts of things. Uh, at this point, uh, how do ethics start to apply to them and some kind of ethics regulation um, when people who, who haven't been trained to do this kind of research start launching out, doing things where no ethics board actually covers them? Great questions, and I hope someday someone answers those. Hilda, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. And that was Hilda Bastian, who writes at the PLOS blog, Absolutely Maybe. We've linked to her on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.